Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our copies of God's Word and return to our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 19 this morning, verses 11 through 25. As you're turning there, I want to address the microscopic elephant in the room, the coronavirus. We're getting calls to the church uh, asking what we're going to do. Well, I always tell you we're going to pray because that's what we do. Uh, I think this is a great opportunity for God's people to have a different worldview and a different reaction than a lost and dying world. In fact, uh, Paul wrote Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, he said, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And he's given us a great weapon, given us many weapons of protection, the whole armor of God, but he's given us prayer, hasn't he? We can come to him and ask for protection, ask him to use this sovereignly for his glory. And I hope you'll join me in those prayers. In fact, uh, can we do that just now? Let's just go to the Lord and ask for those favors. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you tell us that nothing happens outside of your sovereign control. You either allow it or cause it. In either case, all things work together for good for those who love you. And that includes the coronavirus. And Father, we don't wish any harm on any person. And Father, we ask for your protection over our church, especially those who have uh, compromised immune systems already or ongoing illnesses. Pray, Father, that they would be wise and follow their doctor's instructions and thank you for medical science. And Lord, we pray for a cure very soon. We know you could do that by word or you can use science to do that. In any case, we pray that you'd be merciful. Father, we also pray that you'd use this disease and this panic that it's caused worldwide to show people the fragile nature of their own existence and our economy and the very fabric of our culture. And so, Father, I pray it would cause men and women, boys and girls, to run to Jesus and that they would uh, commit their lives to him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Now, Luke 19, 11, Jesus is uh, approaching the city of Jerusalem where he has prophesied that he would be arrested turned over to the Romans, beaten, and put to death. He's not running. He's not hiding. He's not even trying to whip up a revolution, people to join forces and defend him. He's going to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission, which he stated plainly in verse 11. He says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Now, how is he going to accomplish that in Jerusalem? Two words, write them down in your Bible substitutionary atonement. He's going to die in the place of all who would believe on him through faith. The righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust. And so he's on his way to do that. Let's read about what happens next in the story. Luke 19, verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. 
He called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, master, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You're going to be an authority over 10 cities. The second came saying, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. Another came saying, master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I'm an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. And he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. They said to him, Master, he has 10 minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this, his word. Of course, even the closest disciples to Jesus, the 12, did not understand Christ's mission. It was not for lack of information. We saw a couple of weeks ago that numerous times in the gospels, it's recorded that Jesus told them exactly what was going to happen. He would go to Jerusalem. He would be arrested, turned over to the Gentiles, beaten, and ultimately crucified. But they still had in their mind that he was going to Jerusalem to overthrow the Romans, to set up an earthly kingdom, and then they would be co-rulers with him. They would be his governors. So rather than having anxiety over the fact that Jesus is about to be taken from them, they seem to be becoming more excited every step they came closer to the holy city. Look at verse 11. While they were listening to these things, what things? Well, the last thing Jesus said before that was the son of man came to, comes to seek and save the lost. But they misinterpreted that. Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. They supposed that the kingdom of God was about to appear immediately. Remember they're thinking in fleshly, earthly terms about the kingdom. Now this word appear is interesting. It's a nautical term, a term of sailing. Uh, in those days, uh, they didn't have electrical lighting, of course, and to go out into the ocean, you had to be a brave soul. And it was particularly hazardous during the nighttime when you couldn't see where you were going. You could stumble upon a reef or rocks and lose your life very quickly. And so they had men whose job it was to watch through the night. The thing they were really looking for was daybreak. So they kept their eyes fixed on the horizon for that first glint of a sun ray that broke the horizon. And that's what that word means, to appear, to break the horizon. Well, nighttime had fallen spiritually upon Israel. It had been hundreds of years since God had spoken through a prophet until John the Baptist came upon the scene. And when he came, he declared the kingdom is at hand. It's here. And Jesus confirmed that. And so I think these disciples, we need to give them a little break. 
because they were expecting this Messiah to come. It wasn't just the disciples, that was universally what most Jewish people had in mind when they thought of the coming Messiah. It was their internal attitude. Now, they think this is the moment they've all been waiting for. As Jesus would step into Jerusalem, the people would receive him as their king and he would overthrow the government. And yet Jesus says that's not the case. He came this first time not to judge and to kill, but to seek and to save the lost through substitutionary atonement. Now the Bible is very clear that one day Jesus will come again, won't he? This time not riding a foal of a donkey as we'll see in a couple of weeks leading up to Easter. This time riding a white war horse. This time with a sword. This time coming to judge. But that day comes after he goes away for a period of time, which is unspecified how long it is. Jack Gatewood just read about it in John 14. Jesus said plainly to his disciples, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. One day I'll come again, and then we're going to be forever together. But there's this unspecified period of time in between. We know it's at least 2,000 years because that's how long it's been. But he will come. And until then, every believer is undergoing a test of faithfulness. Now, most of Jesus' parables were about things that were very familiar to the people of his day. For example, many of his parables have an agricultural theme. Uh, for example, uh, the parable of the soils. The sower went out to sow. He, he broadcast a seed and it fell on four different kinds of soil. And I really think probably as Jesus was telling that, there was a farmer doing that very thing. And then there's the, the parable of the mustard seed. After the service this morning, a lady asked me to hold out my hand and I did. And, and she said she placed something in my palm. And with my 48 year old eyes, I had to bring it really close. And it was a mustard seed. She said she carries those in her pocket to remind her of these truths. Now, some of Jesus' parables were about business. The story of the Good Samaritans like that. A man was going to do business and he was robbed. There's a story of the Pearl of Great Price where a merchant travels the world looking for uh, merchandise and he stumbles upon this item that's more valuable than anything he's ever found. And so he went and sold everything else liquidated his assets so he could purchase this pearl of great price, which of course is the gospel. There are stories about marriage and family, the, the 10 virgins. And, and there's of course the famous story of the prodigal son. And then there are, are a group of stories about government, those who supervise others, kings and noblemen and servants. And that's the kind of parable we find here in our text today. Look at verse 12. So he said a nobleman, a royal person, went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now remember I said, Jesus told parables about things that would be familiar to his audience. And this particular parable would be super familiar to the people to whom he was addressing in and around Jericho and Judea because it is based on a true story that happened just a few years earlier about a man who once ruled over the very region he was walking through. And the man's name, of course, was Herod. Herod the first is what the historians call him. He gave himself the title Herod the Great. He was very humble that way. 
You remember that uh, that part of the world and most of the world by that time had been conquered by the Roman Empire. And the leader of the Roman Empire was a man who held the title of Caesar. And so Caesar was wise in the way he ruled a large empire in those days. And he would set up local puppet kings and governors to rule in his stead. And one of the governors and kings that were set up in this part of the world was this man, Herod. And he had a very large geographical footprint. But upon his death, his will stated that he wanted his kingdom divided among his three sons. They would each get a smaller portion of the larger region that he had uh, governed. Now remember, Herod the Great's a bad man. This is the same Herod the Great that had the babies put to death during the time of, around Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. But his sons, were it possible, were worse than he. His one son was named Philip, and he was given the area of what is modern-day Syria and Jordan. Uh, there, there was one you've likely heard of, Herod Antipas, who ruled up in Galilee, where Jesus spent a good portion of his ministry. This was the same Herod Antipas who put John the Baptist to death. And they say Herod Antipas that would see over some of the kangaroo court before Jesus was crucified. And, and then there was this guy, Archelaus. Archelaus was given this particular territory that Jesus was walking through called Judea. And he was a horrible man, worse than his father. And the people hated him. And, and so here's what happened when Herod, his father died, to receive this kingdom officially, he had to travel to Rome and Caesar would bestow upon him the title of king of Judea. And when word got out that Herod was traveling to Rome to receive this kingdom, the Jewish leaders got together and they put together a delegation of their own and they trailed him all the way to Rome. And when they got there, they requested an audience with Caesar as well. And they said, don't put this guy over us. We hate him, he's horrible. Well, Caesar was not accustomed to taking orders from anyone, and so he didn't. And he went ahead and gave this guy, Archelaus, this kingdom of his fathers, and he came back and he proved to be unfit. And it was not very long before he was deposed by Caesar, and in his place he put a series of governors of whom one was Pontius Pilate. And so that is the story. The people remembered it very well. In fact, there were reminders of the Herods all around them. In fact, the very road he was walking on was built by Herod the Great. Over to his right, there was a, an aqueduct that Herod had built. And when they got to Jerusalem, the temple itself was called Herod's Temple because he had renovated it thoroughly. He was a builder. And yet uh, his sons were unfit and, and sinful. Well, Jesus picks up on that story they had remembered from history and he applies it to his own kingdom that he's going away in the very near future to receive his kingdom. And while he's away, his servants are to be busy investing in that kingdom. And when he comes home, he's going to call them all into an account. And uh, that really is the story. There, there are three groups of characters in the story, as we'll see in a moment, but Jesus has a way of reducing things down to two, doesn't he? Sheep and goats, lost, saved, kingdom of darkness, kingdom of light. 
And, and the two groups of characters are very clear here. There's the servants and there's the citizens. These servants are loyalists, those who claim to love the king. And they are each given a mina, which is the equivalent of three months' salary. Not a huge amount of money, but a significant amount of money. And they were to invest it, and when they came back, they were to give an accounting for it. The other group were the citizens. And it says here that the citizens, that is the constituency of the king, hated the nobleman. They didn't want him to be king. They sent a delegation after him to say as much. And the nobleman went away and, and returned. It doesn't say how long he was away, but he was away. And when he came back, he called all these people into account. And that's our third point, the three categories of, of judgment. The first begins in verse 15. When he returned, remember he's been away. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. And these 10 slaves come before him. He calls the first one up. The first one appears saying, Master, your mina has made 10 minas more. Wow, 1,000%. That's a good return, businessmen, isn't it? And so, as you might expect, the master said to him, well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in very little thing. You are now to be an authority over 10 cities. That's generosity, isn't it? He gave him three months salary to invest and he did so well, he said, I'm going to give you 10 entire cities to govern over now. Well, he calls another servant up and he says, uh, what, how have you done? And the second came saying, my mean master has made five mean, it's 500%, nothing to sneeze at. And he said to him also, you are to be over five cities. How generous the nobleman is. What a deal. Now, this is a prophecy. And with much of the prophecy in both the Old and New Testament, it has an immediate implication and it has a later fulfillment. And so we'll start with uh, the immediate, that is in the context that it was written 2,000 years ago. Uh, most theologians believe he was speaking here directly of the apostles. Remember, these guys had been told by Jesus that uh, you're going to rule with me in my kingdom. You're going to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. We see that in the Gospels. We also see it in the book of Revelation. And I take that very literally. That is, you apostles that have been my faithful servants are going to share in my glory. And so we might describe this first category of servants as steadfast. That is, they are faithful and true. They say what they do and do what they say. They say they're loyal to Jesus and they prove it by their actions. But there's a second group of servants that he brings up in verse 20 that are not faithful. We can call them spurious, which means fake and not real. The Bible has lots of warnings about fake Christians. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, in his epistle says, faith without works is what? Yeah, it's not real, it's fake. We see some of these fake Christians here in verse 20. It says, another came saying, Master, here's your mina, which I put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You, you take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. And so he did nothing with the mina. He hid it, thinking he was going to be congratulated by the nobleman. Oh, thank you for not losing it. 
Thank you for not wasting it. But he was wrong. In fact, he seems to, to blame his lack of effort on the nobleman. You're, you're such a meanie that I dare not cross you. Really trying to indict the Lord. Here's what the Lord said, verse 22. And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you. You worthless slave. Now, Jesus uses some harsh language sometimes. He even said to Simon Peter, get behind me, Satan. There may not be a, a harsher sentence in the Bible than to be called a worthless slave. Did you not know that I'm an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. The CD rates were low in his day too. But he said, at least you'd have had a little bit of return. You'd have kept up with the cost of living, but he didn't do that. And so in essence, if their economy is like ours, factoring in inflation, if he was gone quite a while, that mina was worth less then than it was when the master, so he lost money. Let's not stretch the metaphor too far, shall we? It's a simple metaphor. But he says, why, why did you not put the money in the bank and having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mean away from him and give it to the one who has 10. They said to him, master, he has 10 minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. Isn't that just like human nature? We feel like we need to put God's fairness on trial. Well, that's not fair, Lord. Don't question the fairness of the fact. Don't ever use the word fair as it relates to God. If we got what was fair, we'd all be in trouble. God's just. He always does what is right. Don't complain about what someone else got or, or didn't get. That's the Lord's business. And so who in the world is, is this false or spurious servant? Well, I think clearly in the immediate context, it's Judas Iscariot. They're going to Jerusalem. Here's a guy that's claimed to be just like the others, loyal to Jesus. And don't think for a minute that the other disciples saw through him the whole time. They did not. You know how I know? They made him the treasurer of the group. He was the least likely in their mind for a long time to, to be this way. So they didn't know. Jesus did. And then there's a third category. I call them the, the subversive. Someone who subverts is your enemy. Verse 27. But these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Jesus had enemies, didn't he? In fact, they were probably listening in on this very conversation. Everywhere he went, these Pharisees would come out or they would send their spies or surrogates. They were always trying to catch Jesus in a trap of sin something they can indict him with. Go back to the other gospels. By this time, chronologically, they had already met together and determined to put Jesus to death. Just a matter of time. Jesus knew that. He, he wasn't taken by surprise. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And so he's speaking here clearly of those Jewish leaders who ultimately would have him arrested and turned over to the Romans and put to death. But remember I said prophecy typically has an immediate application within a future application. And so you may be wondering, that's all well and good, pastor. It's a great metaphor, great parable, great story. 
what in the world does it have to say to us today? Well, I, I say it has a very clear application. I, I would be so bold as to say this. I believe that everyone in this room falls into one of those three categories, including your pastor. We are either a true and trustworthy and steadfast loyalist to Jesus, or else we're fake. We claim to be one thing while being something else totally, or we might even be in the category of being openly hostile to the things of God. Let's walk through these and show you what I mean. A true Christian is one who gives allegiance to Jesus with his mouth. Would you agree? Scripture says that uh, all those who call upon the Lord, kaleo in the Greek, will be saved. Uh, the Bible also says that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. That is a message about Jesus and the gospel and how he saves sinners. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 10, verses 19, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So there has to be that. There, there has to be this declaration that you are a servant and a loyalist to Jesus the King. But that is proven to be true throughout a lifetime. Or it may be proven to be false. Um, we are planning even right now for a conference here in October on the doctrine of assurance. And the theme question is how can one know if they're a true Christian? And I hope you'll pray for that conference and hope you'll be here because it's a question I get a lot about people who are uncertain about their salvation. Now, I don't know exactly what all the speakers are going to preach on, but I, I can guess. I, I, I don't think any of them are going to say, the way you know you're a Christian is if you are a Baptist. <laughs> or that you've joined a local church or that you have been baptized or that your church attendance is 75% or higher. Those are never held up in scriptures as causes for assurance of salvation. On the other hand, the Bible indicates that you shall know them by their love one for another, what you think about other Christians. The Bible says that uh, if you abide in me, you will bear fruit and much fruit. And I think this parable is another way of talking about that. That interest, some 1,000%, some 500%, and some didn't even get 1.2 or whatever they're paying at the bank these days for CDs. The, the point is, if you're a true Christian, you're going to have some return. Now, to be sure, some are going to have a higher return than others. Some are going to receive greater rewards than others. And some are going to get in with hardly any rewards at all. But every true Christian bears some fruit. And the evidence that a person is truly born again is, is the fruit. That's the parable of the soils. It's the same gospel that fell on four soils, but only the good soil produced fruit. That's his point here. If you're a true Christian, you are going to have fruit. You're going to have interest. You're going to have rewards. Secondly, there, there's a group that are spurious they're false Christian. Now, they're not openly hostile to the things of God. In fact, they mix and mingle with the true servants all the time. It's that they don't have any return. That is, they prove themselves not to be genuine. In fact, with his words, he tried to indict the master. 
the nobleman, though he, he knew all the terminology, he knew what time they met, and he was regularly in attendance. And, and friends, that's my great fear and belief that our evangelical churches are filled with people who can sing every note in the hymn book but don't truly know the Lord. They've grown up in the culture and maybe they've even been inoculated against true Christianity. They think by being a member of this church or being in, in their view more moral than most people that somehow they are pleasing in the eyes of God. In fact, Jesus seemed to indicate that on the day of judgment, there are going to be people that come to him from all over and says, Lord, look what we did in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me, you cursed and workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. They're going to be shocked to find out that Jesus is going to say something very similar to them than he said here in this parable, you worthless slave. Now, there are those who would say, well, this is a true Christian. He just won't have any rewards in heaven. I, I disagree. Just like the parable of the soil. Some say, well, all the soils are, are true Christians. At least three of them are. I don't think so. The only one that proved to be true Christian is the one that produced fruit. It's the same story here. And so that's why I said there's really not three categories. There's only two. There's the true Christians who are saved and the false Christians who are lost, but also another group the hostile enemies of the cross. The cross. We're, not, we're not shocked to know they're lost. They are existed in Jesus' day in the form of the Pharisees. They existed in the first century. And friends, they exist today. And speaking more lately with our missionaries in some of the hot spots around the world, the Far East and India, where the persecution has been ramped up by a factor of several in the last few years. They're pushing missionaries out of the country and they're turning on the heat from the local indigenous churches. And they're feeling it, friends. We need to pray for them, with them. They're openly hostile to Jesus and the things of God. But here's the glorious good news truth. God rejoices in saving people out of one category and putting them into the category of true servant. Can you think of examples in the Bible of how he did that? Taking an openly hostile hater of Christ and making him true servant. How about the apostle Paul? He admitted he hated Christ in the church. In fact, he was on his way to Damascus to arrest and persecute Christians when the risen Christ struck him blind there in the middle of the day on a desert road and gloriously saved him. But before he did, he asked Saul a question. Do you remember what it was? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Jesus had been in heaven for some time at that point. But Jesus so identifies with Christians, his church, that to hate and persecute the church is tantamount to hating and persecuting the Lord Jesus himself. Paul realized what he had done and cried out, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord sent a man to open Paul's eyes physically, just as Jesus had opened his eyes spiritually, and he became the greatest Christian that ever lived. So if you're here today and you find yourselves in one of these categories, it's more likely since you're here, 
on time change Sunday on time. If you're not a Christian, you're probably in the category of a false Christian. If you're not a Christian, you're doing the right things. You're coming to church. You might even go to Sunday school, sing all the right notes, but your heart's never been changed. You don't love the things of God. You don't hunger as the deer panteth for water after God's word, intimacy with him. You don't even like Christians. You tolerate them. The Bible says to examine yourself, to make sure you're in the way. That's to all of us. And when we examine ourselves, what are we looking for? We're looking for growth. We're looking for evidences of sanctification. It's not that we don't sin any longer. The apostle Paul in Romans seven, when he was a mature Christian said, the things I don't want to do, I do. Things I want to do, I don't do. Who would deliver me from the body of death? That is, it's a battle every day. It's your attitude towards sin and righteousness that is at stake here. Do you love righteousness? Do you hate evil? Or do you love evil and hate righteousness? That's, that's what he's asking. Person who's a true believer, when he sins, he hates it. She hates it. He repents of it. He runs to Jesus because his mercies are new every day. A person who's a false Christian justifies their own sin. Everybody's doing it. Not a big deal. You're overblowing it. You know people like that. And yet they would fight you tooth and nail if you said you're not a true Christian. In some ways, those who are openly hostile to Jesus and the church are, are easier to witness to than the other category because they don't have the defense mechanism that I'm a true Christian. They, they are relishing in their godlessness. But I believe that God is sovereign enough to save people out of any of those categories, don't you? And the way he does it is the same way he's been doing it for 2000 years. Faith comes by hearing and hearing a message about the word of Christ. We get to be a part of that. The next three Sundays, we're going to talk about personal evangelism. We're going to take a little respite from the Gospel of Luke. For the next three Sundays, we're going to talk about how you can share this good news, yes, with those who are hostile to the cross out in the community, but how you can share it with people you know who believe they're Christians but give no evidence of it whatsoever. And when people get saved, we're going to give the glory to Christ, aren't we? And so let's prepare our hearts for that. And I would say to you, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can have assurance of salvation. Not based upon your ability to be good. It's based on Christ's righteousness imputed to you. But as John the Baptist said to those people he baptized in the wilderness, he said, now go and perform works commiserate with repentance. We know we're saved because our life is changed. Faith without works is dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Father, uh, if what we say today is true, if we've rightly interpreted this passage, and I believe we have, everyone in this room is one of these three categories. Lord, I thank you that there's true Christians in the world. You have your remnant in every generation. And Father, this week as I was in a pastor's conference in Southern California, 3,500 pastors raising their voice as one, singing grace greater than our sin. Lord, I was encouraged because you still have your people. 
Every time I come together in this congregation, every time I hear people in this church pray to you, I'm encouraged that many here are faithful servants. But Lord, we're not naive. We know living in this culture here where it really doesn't cost us that much yet to say we're a believer, there, there are bound to be many who really don't know you. And Father, I'm not God, neither is any person in this room, but you know their hearts. And Father, we experience a little bit of taste in our culture of those who are openly hostile, who hate Jesus and his children. Lord, I, I'm thinking of those in other countries who every day they face the, the, the white hot wrath of those who are doing Satan's work. But yet you are so sovereign that you can transfer people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You're so sovereign, Lord, that you can transfer people out of a category of a fake Christian into the category of a true servant of yours. And Lord, I pray you do that. Pray you do it in our congregation. I pray you do it in every true church worldwide. I pray you'd send us a great ingathering of souls from outside and from within. Not for our name's sake, but for your fame and renown and your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.